We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Let's take a look here at Matthew 16. We're studying the Gospel of Mark, but this is the accompanying text of Mark that's a little bit more illuminating on it. So we'll look at that in Mark 16, verse 13. Dr. Mark Bailey, the former president of Dallas Seminary for about the last 15 years, he felt that this paragraph is the pivot in the life of Christ, that you have Christ presenting himself to Israel, his words, his works, his teachings. Then you see him rejected. Then you see him taking the remnant out of Israel, the disciples, shaping and training the 12 for a future day. Well, now in chapter 13, He is way far north in Israel, in the district of Caesarea Philippi. He will now ask very clearly, who do these people think I am? Who do you say I am? Blessed are you because God told you this, as will be true of all of his people. And upon this rock, and he's going to use a first time mention of a term. And everything changes upon this term. On this rock, I'll build my church. We have never used that word until right now because the door is shut on Israel. You see chapter 16 and verse 20, he warned the disciples they will tell no one he's the Christ. The door shuts. It's done. And now in verse 21, he no longer speaks illusory No longer does he talk about as Jonah is in the belly of the fish three days, so I'll be in the heart of the earth three days. Now he simply says, at that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, raised the third day. Now it's out in the open. The die is cast. The battle is afoot. Now he will make his way down to his third day. Passover in Jerusalem, and there he will die. And so this is the watershed in Christ's ministry. There's nothing really morally you're going to have to learn here, not directly. So it's a very uh, guilty-friendly text. There's not a lot of guilt. But each, there's about eight different ideas, and every one of them is a theological chasm that opens up to you, a cavern. You got to understand them. And so, listen close. Watch this. In verse 13, he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. There is a Caesarea down on the Mediterranean coast that is built by King Herod. He built it for Caesar. It is Caesarea. It is the major shipping coming in, going out place on the Mediterranean coast. Herod had a son named Philip, and he wanted to build Herod something. I'm not Herod. Caesar something. And so he went up north, right at the foot of the biggest mountain in Israel. The only place in Israel you can ski is on Mount Hermon. And there at the base of it, he built Caesarea Philippi, designating him. And it's at Caesarea, uh, on our Israel trip, We always stay there a little while. It's also the place where the Mount of Transfiguration is, Mount Hermon. 
And it's at this point that it's kind of odd. At, at the foot of Mount Hermon is where the worship of the god Pan was worshipped, god of the underworld. There's even a huge chasm that drops down that was called the Gates of Hades. And they would worship different gods here at Mount Hermon. And they also worshipped Caesar at Mount Hermon. And so this is kind of the garden of the gods. And Jesus turns to these men. Now he has been moving around the parameter of Israel. It is also called not just the training of the twelve, it's called the withdrawal period. He's not in Israel proper. He's always moving and training his boys and getting them ready for what they don't know is about to come. Can God ever do that? Train you for something that you don't know what's about to come until it gets on you. Well, in verse 13, he, in these garden of the gods, he asked the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man being a term from Isaiah, I'm sorry, Daniel about the Messiah. Who do people say I am? The answer, some say John the Baptist, a guy back from the dead. Other, Elijah, a guy that's revisited earth from heaven. Others, Jeremiah, a guy back from the dead, or one of the prophets. In other words, people's view of you is that you are supernatural. You are otherworldly. But no one said that you are divine. You are God. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised divine revelation of God. Nobody said that. In the same way today, if you ask people about Jesus, they'll usually give you a very mystic answer. He's the perfect man, the most highly enlightened man, the, most, the man with the most livid sense of God consciousness. If you're in San Francisco, they may say that he's an alien, okay? That he's somebody from somewhere else, that he's a revisitation of, who knows? No one will simply say he was a really good guy. There's something mystic about him, but no one will go all the way and say this is the word made flesh that dwelt among us. And so they give these supernatural answers, these mystic answers. Verse 15, who do you say? I that have spent over two years with you. What have you seen? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, and this is the first of eight things you want to note. It's called a confession. You are the Christ, the promised Old Testament son of David the king. You are the son of the living God. You are homo usia, with God, of the same substance. That's a term that was coined in 325 at Nicaea, that Christ was not hetero usia, a different substance than God. He was not homo usia, a similar substance to God. No, the Athanasian Creed, 325 AD, one of the guys that voted for it was uh, a fellow named uh, St. Nicholas of Mysia, Santa Claus, voted for the deity of Christ. Yes, he did. That's why whenever a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door with his idea of an Aryan view of Jesus, you say, hey, even Santa Claus don't like you. They're not sure what you're talking about. Huh? But yeah, at, my, at Nicaea, they, the 318 voted and 316 said, he is homo, usia. Same 
Usia, same substance as God, different persons, Father, Son, but the same deity. Peter is pre-Nicaea. You are the Messiah, and you are the son of not just the G-O-D, not just the God of Zoroastrianism, not Bythos, the unfathomable of the Gnostics. You are the son of the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is called the confession of Peter. That whenever man gets restored to God, and touches. That's the initial touch. God has made a declaration through his word. I am sending the king. I am sending my son, the son of the living God. And this person will die upon a cross for you and rise from the dead. The initial touch is when you and God come to agree on that mediator in the middle. You say, yes, Jesus said, he who believes in me has set his seal to this, that God is true. You line up with the Bible. And man will not do that of himself. It must be the grace of God, as Jesus will say. And so first, there is a confession. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, did whoever looked to him, had life, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, that he is the Son, he will not perish, but he will have everlasting life. And so, how about you? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How was Peter so insightful in verse 16 or 17. Here's why Peter was so insightful. It wasn't because he was smart. Jesus said to him, what's your first word? Blessed. God has put his hand on you. Blessed are you. Paul said, I thank my God for all of you that the reason you are Christians is that God has been pleased to act. And so, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. His name's Simon Johnson, if you meet him in heaven. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this, meaning Peter's own flesh and blood. You didn't figure this out, Peter, by your study and because you're so smart and your GPA is higher than the other fishermen. We are not Christians because we represent the smartest in Denton County. Look around. <laughs> this is not a Phi Beta Kappa in here. No. We are not Christians because on our own we thought through this and intellectually earned the right to be saved. Amen. We can't say to the rest of the world, if you guys were just as smart as me, you would be saved too. You're blessed. Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this, but my Father who is in heaven, heaven reached down to you. Y'all ever sing that from the Gaithers? Heaven came down 
and glory filled my soul. Or he touched me. Yes, he touched me. And so God has opened your eyes. So point number one, we are Christians through nothing we do, but we agree with God and we confess he is the son of God who died on the cross for me. That was God's son who died. And then secondly, we recognize that because of divine revelation. It goes like this. No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No man comes to me, said Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's the same word used for when Peter caught fish and drew him into the boat. You will not come unless God brings you in. Left to your own, you will always end up averse to God. Amen. Whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called he justified, and whom he justified he glorified. It's a work of God. And God opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the thing spoken by Paul. He could talk all day and it bounced off of her. God, and that's the word open is our word unentangled. He unentangled her heart and she went, oh, all the Father gives to me, they will come to me. And the one who comes, I'll not cast out. I give him eternal life and I'll raise him on the last day. God gives them. It's called the elect. Who, when he who had me set apart even from my mother's womb was pleased to reveal his son in me, I did not consult with flesh and blood. Paul said, God revealed his son in me. Paul knew who Jesus was and he cursed him. But God had to show him who he was. Matter of fact, on one of the texts in John, Jesus said, whoever beholds the Son and believes in him. He was not talking about the apostles simply, but all through history. When you become a Christian, it's because God allows you to see Christ in the gaze of the soul. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. It is granted. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, Believed, Dr. Luke, or as we sing, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Amen? It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How's the other song go? I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin revealing Jesus in God's word, creating faith in him. But I know whom I have believed. And so that is old-fashioned, monergistic, one-work salvation, the activity of God to save the lost. You say, when I found the Lord, he wasn't lost. He found you. Sheep don't find shepherds. Sheep find death. Shepherds find sheep. And that's why you are saved. 
Do you understand that? No. Go cogitate on it for about 80 years, though. It will warm your heart. And so, in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Petras. And upon this Petra, this rock, I will build my church. The people that are now summoned to God, we're going to call them something. They're not Israel. They enjoy the blessings of Israel. They're grafted into the rich root of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant through whence comes Christ. But they are called the ecclesia, kaleo, to call kaleo, to call out of ekkaleo. That's the word for ecclesia. We get it in Spanish. It's uh, iglesia. And ecclesia means it's a bunch of people that hear the voice of the Son of God. The sheep hear my voice and I call them by name. Another they will not follow. Isn't that mystic? But it is. They hear my voice. They follow me and I give eternal life to them. And so this is, if you could watch planet Earth like the angels do, you'd see a dark place and you would see little points of light like fireflies all moving to a cross. You ever seen the great Christian movie, Close Encounters? <laughs> I always think of that. Where everybody, just all of a sudden, whatever. What is it, Kendall? Do you have? No, never mind. They all hear that tune and they are inextricably drawn to a place. Don't email me. But that's what salvation is. They hear a tune and it's so lovely and they start moving to a place and they all converge at the cross. That's the church. We sing in one of our hymns, elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth their charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. And so, this is a first. I'm about to do something new. I'm about to have a people that all are going to unite on a common confession and a common doctrine. And it's going to be in an invisible Jesus. He will have died, ascended, and gone away. But they're all going to be drawn to this cross. Uh, notice in verse 18, upon this rock, I will build my church. It's going to be my doing. I will choose them. I will predestinate them. Glory. From eternity to eternity. Then I will call them in my pleasure. And then I will efficaciously draw them. That means you come whether you like it or not. You have to come. You must. And then you believe and I will convert them. And I will seal them. And I will keep them. And gift them. And illumine them to my word. And empower them for ministry. And I will chasten them when they wander. And I will use them as part of my body. And I will glorify myself through them. And someday... Like a bridegroom, I'll come get them and I'll take them home on a honeymoon. And so I'll build my church. Peter, you can help, but I'll build it. 
It goes like this. I planted, Apollos watered, how's the rest of it go? God caused the growth. It's up to him. So then, neither the one who waters nor the one who sows is anything, but God who causes the growth. And the fifth thing that you see here in verse 18, on this rock, it's the Greek word petra, and it means a cornerstone, a foundation stone. Whenever you built a house in those days, there was two kind of cornerstones. You could build the arch, and what's got to be the strongest stone on your arch? The capstone, right in the middle, because the whole building rests on it. So you would find the prettiest, best stone, and you put it there. And then on the foundation, you put the keystone. It has to be a perfect right angle. You line everything up on it. Christ is both of those, the capstone and the corner. Uh, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. That's Christ. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Christ. The Lord is my rock and my salvation. That's Christ. The stone that followed them was Christ, Paul said to the Corinthians. In the book of Daniel, there is a stone cut out of a mountain without hands that crushes man's dominion and grows to be the uh, mountain that fills the whole earth. Christ, the stone, 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 the stone. Huh, I wonder what the stone is. Peter, idiot. No. Scripture is interpreted by other scripture and every other scripture, the rock is Christ. And that is the common bond is Peter's confession, the divinely inspired illumination. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I believe in you. All the rest of the world says you're an alien, says you're a criminal. I love you. Because God the Holy Spirit drew me to you. Christ made me one of his stones. And whenever you do that, you now have the one thing in common that all of the church has. What's the one thing that we all have? We're all built upon the rock. If I ask any saved, truly saved person in here, you going to heaven? Yes, Why will God let you into his heaven? Jesus, he will let me in only because of Christ who died for me. I did nothing except wander for him that is Christ. When I ask a guy if he knows the Lord and he hesitates on that answer, I got a problem with him. When did you come to know the Lord? You might hesitate on, well, I might have been a little guy, but I know for sure when I was older, I put my trust in Christ. If you would die now and go to heaven, would you stand before God? Yes, I would. Why? Christ, he's right there. He doesn't cough. He doesn't wonder. He doesn't say, I think I need a little more time. He doesn't say, well, I've tried my best. Well, I hadn't murdered any. Well, I guess I have. Varzano uh, hadn't murdered. He doesn't do that. Why are you going to heaven? Christ. Amen. That's the name above all names. And so I'm going to build my church upon this singular man's confession. And that's why I can go around and find all sorts of different Christians at Denton Bible. We all have one thing in common. 
we all fled to the ark of Christ. Amen? And we have no other hope but him. Well, in verse 18, he uses another term that we need to understand. You are Petros. It means a stone, not the stone. You are a stone. Because when you put the keystone down, that you would put other stones around it. When you put the capstone, you'd put the other stones around it. And so there are going to be other stones of which Peter is always mentioned as the leader. In all of the list of the apostles, Peter is mentioned as the leader. He is an equal. Uh, he is a leader among equals. He is in no sense closer to God than anybody else. But he is a leader. And all of these 12 are called stones. They're the foundation stones. Let me show you something. Look at Ephesians 2. Just real quick. This is Paul's letter on the church. And in Ephesians 2... Paul says, there it is, 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens as Gentiles. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're citizens. You're family. You're of God's household. He says to the Gentiles, welcome to the family. And then he says, 20, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, like a new temple, is being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ is the cornerstone, and the apostles and those who proclaim apostolic truth, they are the foundation stones. And this is a very important point. Because Christ designates here who the men are that have the last say. When Jesus leaves, he's not going to leave it up to everybody on what they think. I'm going to have some Petroses, some stones in place. As a matter of fact, when you get to heaven, you see the holy city. The, the wall of the city are built upon the, the foundation stones of the 12 apostles. And so the final issue is not what I think. It's not what Steve thinks. What does Paul think, who was an apostle, who saw the risen Lord? What does Peter think? What does John think? What does James think? And the early church, when they canonized what was and what was not New Testament writings back in the third century, the chief issue was who wrote the document do we know it was an apostle, an eyewitness? Because that's what separates the apostles from other men. They're not bigger, smarter, or richer. They saw the event. Christianity is not built on philosophy. It's built on an event. It's not built upon a set of rules that you attain to. It's built on an event, the incarnation. Baptism by John the Baptist, pointing to him, the spirit descending, hearing his words, seeing his miracles, watching him die and rise from the dead and come back and ascend into glory. That's the foundation of the church is the event and the guys that he turns the, the leaders over to. The cords are these 12 men plus the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. 
And what you have to be to be an apostle is you have to have seen him and been there from the beginning. You remember when they had to replace Judas with Matthias? And the, the uh, standard was, he has to have been from the time of John the Baptist to the present. He has to have seen it because Christianity is built upon. He came, he died, he rose, he ascended, and he sat down. We are like Miriam singing praise for what God did at the Red Sea. Look what God did. And so, I am going to have stones. Peter, you are the leader. Um, in Acts chapter 2, who opened the door to the Jews? Peter at Pentecost. When he went down to Samaria, who went down to check out the gospel in Samaria to see if it was right? Peter. Whenever we're going to bring in Gentiles, Cornelius, who goes to Cornelius? Peter. Whenever Paul comes back from his preaching, and the thought was that you've got to get circumcised to be saved, they brought it to the apostles. Peter said, no, we believe that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, even as the rest was the first apostles', apostles pre, uh, creed. That's the rule. And so, God has made it easy for us. You don't have to wonder and read as to what I said. These men will write it. And they're the only ones that can write it. Let me show you something. Look at John chapter 16. As Jesus is about to quit the earth, he's at the Last Supper, he's talking about him leaving. And he says, just before he does, we've got to establish who is in charge. Once you leave, you've got to establish this guy is the steward. This is the Daniel. This is the Joseph. This is the guy in charge. Verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, you apostles. You can't bear them right now. But when he... That is a third-person singular male pronoun. There's somebody coming. He, the Spirit of truth. Who are we talking about here? The Holy Spirit of God. Notice Dr. Ryrie used to say at seminary, the word pneuma demands a neuter pronoun, it. Jesus doesn't give him a neuter pronoun. He gives him a personal pronoun. And Ryrie would say, that's bad grammar, but it's good theology. When he, the spirit of truth, because he is the one that inspires the Bible and its recipients. When he comes, he will guide you, the apostles. Plural word there, you. You 12, he'll guide you into the truth. How much truth? What's it say? All the truth. If these guys don't write it, don't believe it. And the only reason you believe it is one of these guys says it's okay. Like um, Paul said Luke was okay. Like Peter said Mark was okay. And like whoever wrote Hebrews, somebody said that was okay. But you always look at the author the nature of doctrine, does it agree with all other doctrine? The Christological elevation, the moral consensus, 
and then how you feel when you read it. John said, he that knows God listens to us. He that knoweth not God does not listen to us. There is an existential witness of the Spirit. So we know what the canon is. So this is Jesus talking about, you men are going to write some stuff. The Holy Spirit of God that inspired Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, he's going to inspire Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and the like. And he will guide you. Notice guide. You're not going to go into a trance, wake up, and have Romans. He is going to take your normative abilities, like when your kid's riding a bicycle and you're right behind him, giving him help, or he uses his natural abilities as you cooperate with him. And we're going to guide you into all the truth. Who's the last apostle to die? John. And when he dies, he writes the last book. He puts a bow on it, the book of Revelation. And the last thing he says in Revelation is, add to this, go to hell. Because he's the last one. Remember that when somebody comes biking up to your door with book 67. Every cult begins with book 67. I have talked to those gentlemen at times once they dismount their Schwinn's. And I say to them, we'll talk, but here's the rules. You can't talk of anything outside of the Bible, and I won't talk about anything outside of the Bible. All right? All right. Well, don't you think that God could inspire it? No. No. Because he said he wouldn't. It's done. Because if he hadn't have said that, we would have guys like you. And so, no. Now, show me. Joe Smith, show me Maroney, show me uh, Salt Lake City, show me Brigham Young, all right. You know how he got that name? He went away to bring wives for the workers, and he said, what do y'all want? And they said, Brigham Young. He said, I can do that. <laughs> it's your story. But he's going to guide you and to all of the truth, because he's not going to speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak. And his mind and the mind of the Father are homoousia. They're one substance. He will say nothing out of context with the rest of the Bible. And he is going to disclose to you what is to come. There is more truth coming. And there's probably a double meaning to this. The last book will be what is to come. It's going to be pulling back the covers, the apocalypse. Revelation, he's going to show you where history is going to end. And in verse 14, he's going to elevate me. It's going to glorify me. Take of mine and disclose it to you. And so, Jesus says, I'm giving you guys uh, the keys. I'm giving you authority. Let's go back here to Matthew. And if you'll see in verse 19, these men, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. When you give somebody keys like Pharaoh gave Joseph, like Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel, like Jacob gave Joseph, when you give them the keys, they have authority. It's not original authority. It's to carry out your authority. And that's what's meant here. 
Keys of the kingdom mean you're going to say yes and you're going to say no. You're going to say come. You're going to say stay out. You're going to say that's right. You're going to say that's wrong. You're going to say that's true. You're going to say that's a lie. I'm going to let you guys speak for me when I'm gone. I'm not going to leave it down here to a, just a big fire drill of everybody pontificating on what they think. I'm putting you guys in charge. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. You've got the keys. You're going to write. If it doesn't agree with you, it doesn't agree with the Holy Spirit, and that didn't agree with me, and that doesn't agree with the Father. And so I'm going to give you a document, the New Testament. But what's interesting is you should have in verse 19 an odd verb tense. Whatever you bind on earth, that means you say no. Peter, don't we have to all be circumcised now that we're Gentiles saved? No, I bind that. No, that is not true. Peter, we got a guy living over here with his, his uh, stepmother, his father's wife. What do you think? Even the Gentiles don't do that. I've already judged him as though I'm there in the flesh. No, he's done. That will not happen in the church. He exercises apostolic authority. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. You notice that verb tense? It's odd. Shall have been bound. Future, passive, perfect. You say, I knew that. But it means it's a future act that is already completed. It's perfected. It shall have been bound in heaven. And it's passive. It's something that is done on the subject. And so whatever you bind, it's not going to be original in you. It shall have already been bound in heaven. So the jobs of the apostles, dig this now, is not to originate truth. It is the declaring of pre-existing truth. Did everybody get that? That's what that means. That's why the odd verb tense. He doesn't say what you bind will be bound. He says what you bind shall have been bound. So they're not going to originate truth. We have no papal infallibility. Matter of fact, we got no papal. What we have is the declaration of what heaven says is true. And whatever you loose on earth, shall have been loosed in heaven. Peter said, we believe that we're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, even as the rest. Did you go eat with Gentiles, Cornelius and these guys? Yes, because God told me to. He did this and he did this. And they said, well, then God has granted repentance leading to the Gentiles who are we to stand in God's way. Peter said, that's bound. We're not going to shut them out. And they said, it's done. And so we check in with the document. And that's why Denton Bible and every other true church wants to be apostolic. That doesn't mean you can trace your pastor back to whoever. That means you can trace your preaching back. Are you with me? That's what's apostolic. And so you can be a church from the 14th century, Our Lady by the Creek up the turnpike around the Cloverleaf. But if you're not quoting the Bible, you got nothing to say. Amen? And if anybody says what ain't there, you get up and leave. Because their job is to be 
apostolic. What do the guys say that Jesus said? Those are the guys that say you never depart from that. And so the church is to be a shadow of heaven. If heaven does it, we're going to do it. If heaven doesn't do it, we're not going to do it. You don't do wife beating in heaven. You don't beat your wife on earth. You don't steal in heaven. You don't steal in the church. They may steal all over out here, but we're not going to steal here. And if we catch somebody stealing, all right, we're going to have to deal with it. You don't mess around with a woman that ain't your wife in heaven. And you don't do it here on earth in the church. You can do it all over the streets out there, but you don't do it here. You can be racist in the world. Are they racist in heaven? No, they are not. We're not going to be racist here. And if there is racism, we're going to solve it by the gospel, not by what a bunch of Germans thought in 1923. All right. We're going to solve it the way the Bible says it. In other words, the church is an embassy of heaven. Their sanctuary. This is what heaven is like. We're a reflection. And that makes us, those that come out of an embassy, are called ambassadors. And I want you to notice something. Flip over one page to chapter 18 and verse 15 on how this is applied. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two more. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's three strikes. If he doesn't listen to the church, you regard him as a non-Christian. You don't take communion. You can come sit in the back and listen, but you're not part of the church. We're not going to call you brother. I'm sorry. We have rules. In verse 18, look at what Jesus underscores this with. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The job of the church is to reflect the ethic of heaven. That's why our marriages are different. Our kids are raised different. Our view of reality is different. The way we treat each other is different. I don't care how perverse Rome gets. We are Christians. And so, let me show you. I got just a second for Papa. Let me back up here. <laughs> I want you to look real quickly at Isaiah 22, because if you knew your Bible really well, you would be thinking, where have I heard this before? In Isaiah 22, watch this. As a matter of fact, in that Matthew 18 text, the keys of the kingdom, you could very easily have had a cross-reference that said Isaiah 22. Very rarely does God leave a doctrine resting on one scripture. He'll always line it up. In Isaiah 22, in verse 15, we have a lousy steward 
over the royal family of the king in Judah. His name is Shebna. He's a scribe, but he has failed his duties. He was lured away by money and fame and notoriety, just like the Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' day. And in verse 15, the Lord God of hosts says, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who's in charge of the royal household. I gave him the responsibility over the kids to teach the kids, homeschool those kids. What right do you have here? Whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself and you hew a tomb on the height and carve a resting place for yourself in the rock? God says, boy, who do you think you are? to use state funds in your position to elevate yourself. You remember this language to the Pharisees? You love the chief seats. You loved all those terms of honor. You loved to lengthen your tassels. You love to lord it over everybody. Who gives you the right to do that? He says here to Shebna, where did you get this? In verse 17, behold, the Greek says, look at him. It's the East Texas version. Look at him. The Lord is about to hurl you headlong, old man. He's going to grasp you firmly and roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you to a, in a vast country. And there you're going to die, you and your splendid chariots. I'm about to wind you up and I'm going to throw you plumb to Babylon and you and your memory and all of the funds that you have depleted are going to die there with you. This is what's called a court-martial, a real serious court-martial, when you are wadded up like so much trash and thrown away. Can God do that to you? Yes, he can. In verse 19, I'm going to depose you from your office and pull you down from your station. Now, this is what Christ did to the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. You do this and this and this. He said, your kingdom's taken away from you. Your house is left desolate. And you're not going to see me again till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I'm going to turn to these guys and I'm putting them in your place. In verse 20, it'll come about in that day. I'll summon my servant, Eliakim. Son of Hilkiah, I'll clothe him with your tunic. I'll tie your sash securely about him. Any of you guys ever play high school, maybe in college football, where some coach got mad at you and you played on the first team and he had you jerk off your jersey? And then he took off the jersey of a scrub and gave you the scrub's journey, jersey, put the starter's jersey on the scrub and sent him in for you. It's the highest of court marshals. You ever seen Rudy? Rudy, Rudy. That's what the coach did to Rudy. He elevated him right in the presence. Had the other guy take his jersey off. Go sit on the sideline. That's what God's doing to Shebna the scribe. Take your uniform off. Give it to me. Why? Because I'm giving it to somebody else. In verse 21, I'll entrust him with your authority and he'll become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah. And then listen to this. And I'll set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. 
that sound familiar? I'm going to give him your authority. That's what Jesus quoted when he fired the Pharisees. He fired the Jewish leaders and he turned to the apostles and he said, you're in charge. You're in charge. Whatever you bind shall have been bound. Now I want to show you one other thing. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. These guys bind what shall have been bound. They loose what shall have been loosed. But who is it that has ultimate control? Chapter 3, verse 7, Revelation. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, that's Jesus, who is true, that's Jesus, who has the key of David, he is the king who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. So you tell me, who will the apostles take their direction from? Jesus. He is the king. Do we have elder rule at Denton Bible? No. We have Christ rule through the apostles. We have elders who seek out that spirit-led truth and seek to get as close as they can. That's what elder rule. It's not elder rule. It's Christ rule. I'm done. Let me ask you. Nobody feels guilty right now, right? There was no moral injunction. Was there a chunk of theology right here? Yeah. If you understand the confession, efficacious grace that brought it on, the church... Uh, built on Christ with the apostles as the voices of affirmation led by the Spirit of God into the truth given the keys originally to Christ whereby they follow his lead to establish the will of God on earth. Someday will every knee bow and every tongue confess and every body will be under the foot of the last Adam. Question, who are the first of all of mankind to bow beneath his foot? Apostles and then his people. It's us. We're the first. We're the first. Father in heaven, I pray that when you come, that you would find us faithful, that you would find us loyal to the king, loyal to the men whom the Holy Spirit inspired to lead us, that we would be a Christian, apostolic, spirit-led church. And if heaven doesn't do it, then we're not going to do it. If heaven gives us the freedom, then we'll do it. But if it says no, we're not going to do it. And I pray that when all of us here are dead and gone and new guys come in, that that same spirit would abide. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.